Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions, Transitions Life Care. Excuse me. I, man, almost messed that up. Don't want to do that. Here on News Radio 680 WPTF. Good Saturday evening to you. We've got Cooper Linton with Transitions Life Care. Good evening to you, Cooper. Good evening. Glad to be here. And with uh, Transitions Guiding Lights, I really need to update my sheet here. Nicole Cleggett. <laughs> I almost said a different name. That's okay. I'm still doing it. So as long as I'm doing it, you can do it. Okay. We're good. Well, I'll, I'll stay. I'll try and stay in pace with you. We're glad to be here. Well, uh, lady and gentlemen, we are we are rapidly approaching our uh, our fun event date for advanced directives. Uh, it's coming up here in April, Cooper. So uh, w- give us the details. Well, the details are April 14th. Uh, at either 11 a.m. or 12.30 a.m., people can come out to the campus on uh, for Transitions Life Care, located at 250-250 Hospice Circle uh, in Raleigh, which is about one mile west of the PNC Arena there on Trinity Road. Um, come out and actually get a class on advanced directives, get to do a Q&A session with uh, an attorney as well as a physician, and then get those, once those questions are answered, you can actually execute the documents with an attorney, with the notaries, get copies, walk out the door with everything that you need. We'll even throw in snacks. Everything is free. And we simply ask that you go to transitionslifecare.org and register. Uh, in anticipation of that, though, this is today's teaser. We actually have Ken Burgess, who's a partner with Pointer and Sproul, who has helped organize, coordinate, and uh, staff through the North Carolina Bar Association, these events across the state. Uh, so he's a colleague, he's also a friend, uh, a great person in the industry who has actually helped craft some of the statutes and the documents that are out there in North Carolina. So welcome to the show, Ken. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. That's the biggest warm-up I know how to give. You know, it, I it, love it. It's, it's awesome. better than lawyer jokes. Much better. Thank you. <laughs> We'll tell those later. We'll, we'll get to them. There's always an opportunity for a lawyer joke. Well, you know, Ken, you've been working in advanced directives for a long while. Why are you so passionate about it? Well, you know, um, uh, that's a great question. Um, p- people jokingly call me Dr. Death because I talk about death and dying so much. But um, I've been working in healthcare in general for about 33 years. And one issue that we see that runs across all areas of healthcare from birth literally to grave is planning for end of life. You know, we know that uh, most Americans will spend an awful lot of time and a lot of money planning for everything from a car purchase sure. to a marriage to a divorce to whatever. We don't spend a lot of time planning for end of life. And we know that um, Cooper, one in five deaths in this country still occur in the intensive care unit which is not the place most of us want to spend our last days. So for me, the work I do, uh, which is largely charity work, pro bono, if you will, around um, death and dying is helping people plan now so that those remaining final days are as good as they can be, that you're surrounded by the people you want to be with and you're in a place you'd like to be in. So I know that you're you're actively involved in this pro, no, pro bono work. I know that several of your partners and associates at Pointer and Spruill are, and you're helping coordinate events all across North Carolina around Healthcare Decisions Day. That's right. Uh, we started uh, this project actually started in 2006 
This is how old we are and how quickly technology. Experienced, Kim. Experienced. Well, <laughs> right. But we started in 06 creating a DVD. Remember those? Nobody uses DVDs. We thought we would do a DVD with basic information for North Carolinians on what's an advanced directive, what does it do, what are its limits, and how do I get one? And over time, of course, technology changed, and we went to a website, which we still have. Sure. And eventually, we realized that there's no replacement for face-to-face conversation, especially about something that is often as misunderstood as uh, end-of-life healthcare planning. So several years ago, working with the Bar Association and a lot of providers, transitions and others, we um, started these live in-person clinics. They're mostly on one Saturday in April. Uh, a few dates are, are different than, than the main date, but we have 20 to 25 clinics, which is about one-fifth of North Carolina. On that Saturday, we have a clinic for people to come, as you mentioned, and learn basic information. And if they want to want to do it, they can actually execute free an advanced directive. Um, I shared with you previously, Cooper, that I often hear of people who go to their attorney to have wills made for their property. And while they're there, they'll have an advanced directive created, which is great. They also pay three or four hundred dollars for it. We try to make this available for free, so people of all uh, income levels have access. So, you know, Ken, one of the things that I've faced throughout my career working with family caregivers and seniors is there's a great hesitation to have a conversation about wishes at end of life. What do you think the issue is around that? Why do people hesitate? You know, even with my own family, you know, I have advanced directives. My husband has advanced directives, but I still can't even get my parents. Now, now I know they have them, but they won't tell me what their wishes are. So where, where, where does that come from? Yeah. yeah, you know, we hear that a lot and we see it a lot. I think it's just that talking about death is uncomfortable. Um, but I would urge people to get over that. Um, one of the labels we use for our project is begin the conversation. Just start the conversation. And often we find that it's the children of parents, especially parents of my parents' generation. Now, I'm 60 years old now. It just wasn't something we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are encouraging uh, children and grandchildren to have uh, the conversation. One thing I would urge listeners to be aware of is that when we rely on other people to decide for us the kind of care we do want or we do not want at the end of life, there's some data out there. And that data suggests that uh, in most cases, people we ask to choose for us get it wrong over half the time. Mm -hmm. In other words, what they would decide for us in end of life care is not what we would have chosen. You know, one of the suggestions I've given family caregivers over the years, which seems to work, is, you know, if someone else close in their lives that their loved one has witnessed passes, that's kind of a good time to say, you know, such and such Aunt Aunt Chris passed away like this. Is this, you know, something, did this go the way you would want it to go if this was you in that situation? And oftentimes people will have a very fast, oh, gosh, no, that is not what I want, or oh, yes, that was wonderful. So that can sometimes open that conversation because it is kind of an awkward thing, I think, that families face of, you know, when do we do it after we carve the Thanksgiving turkey? You know, when do we do it, you know, when we're doing yard work? And so it's kind of like when when's the appropriate time to, to open that conversation? Yeah, you're exactly right. And, and every family 
family is different, but we have, we we see people who will will say, "Family, we're getting together on Saturday. We're going to have hot dogs, and we're going to talk about our plans." Um, and once you get the conversation started, it you know it's usually very fruitful. But but again, one way to go at it is you hear about a tragic situation, and you go like, "Gee, Ma, what would you want if you were in that situation?" Because I don't know, mm-hmm. and I want to do whatever you'd want me to do. And then, of course, we want you to document that because we also know that if I tell Cooper, if Cooper is my brother, and I say, Cooper, if I ever was in a tragic car wreck, here's what I want, he knows what I want. But we know from research that Cooper would tend to replace my wishes with what he wants for me, which is to be alive. Don't ever want to let you go, Ken. I I love you for it, man. Thank you. (laughs) But I think it does bring up a, a very valid point that it's not simply the documentation. It's the dialogue. It's the discussion. It's the sharing of those views. Um, so we're going to about to take a break in a second. But when we come back, I'd like for us to talk about how does the North Carolina statute handle this if I don't have documents? Because sometimes the question is, well, somebody's going to do something, and, and they will. And there's some structure for that. But I'd like for us to delve into that a little bit when we come back. We'll do just that. Our guest this evening is Ken Burgess. He's with Pointer and Sproul, attorneys at law, and we'll continue our discussion on advanced directives in just a bit. Stick around. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. You can find more about them at transitionslifecare.org. Nicole Cleggett and Cooper Linton, Jason Kong here with you. And our guest this evening is Ken Burgess with Pointer and Sproul. And we're talking all about advanced directives. And Cooper, just before the break, we were uh, sort of getting into the prospect of what happens if you don't have these documents? What's what's the protocol there? And uh, let's dive right back into it. Well, the question you know comes up. Well, isn't there a statute? Isn't there a law that that dictates who's in charge? And uh, it kind of dictates who's in charge if you haven't taken steps to make it not the default. Um, and it's interesting. We've we, it's like a decision tree. But I think you know, Ken, who uh, who's in charge if I don't want to put somebody in charge? So we do have a statute. And for all your listeners who like to look up law on Google, which is my favorite legal research tool now. It's, it's actually uh, North Carolina General Statute 90-21.13. So you can check me if I misquote it. I call this our family decision tree statute. That's a label I created. But basically what it says is for any physician to issue an order, including one that withholds end-of-life care, there has to be consent. Somebody has to be able to give consent. And this statute explains to whom does a doctor or a long-term care facility or whatever turn for that consent. Who has authority? Who has authority? Who is your, we call that your surrogate, the person standing in your shoes, making a decision when you can no longer make or communicate your own choices. And the way it works is it's a ranking. And so we go down the order of people in this list until we find one. And when we find that person, they're in charge. So who's the first person on that list? Well, if you have created a healthcare power of attorney, which I know we'll talk more about, you have a healthcare agent. That's what the person's called. They get to make the decision. That's what we want you to do. 
because you've named the person and you've told them what you want. But if you don't uh, do that, then... Um, well, I was going to say, let's just back up a second, because sometimes I think this is where people get scared. We're talking about who gets to make a decision, but I get to make the decision unless what? Myself. I can make, because, you know, I think that's some of the hesitation that folks have in naming these advanced directives. They worry that once they name them, that now they no longer are in control of their lives. That's a great question. So a healthcare power of attorney is the document most people will create it names a third party to make decisions for you and here is the pertinent answer to your question if and when you can no longer make or communicate your own decisions so even if you have one of these documents uh, as long as you're still labeled you as the patient to indicate what you want that document has no effect it only kicks in when you're at a place where you can't any longer explain what it is you want. And that's when the statute would also kick in. That's also when the statute would kick in. We're always going to ask a competent patient, meaning competent, meaning they can communicate what they want. We're always going to ask you what you want and and follow that instruction unless you can't explain what you want. So if at some point I'm not competent and let's say I appointed Jason here and Jason, I've appointed him as my healthcare power of attorney and I'm not able to, I'm not competent for a period of time. I may be unconscious. He could make decisions on my behalf. What happens when I regain my senses, if you will? If you return to a place where you can make and communicate your own decisions, that power you gave Jason stops. All right, so it's not a permanent thing. It's only when I don't have my own voice. So you're back in charge as long as you're able. That's right. So then who decides I'm not competent? That's another good question. A lot of people think that you have to go to court and have a judge declare Ken's incompetent. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. The statutes say that your attending physician, whoever that may he or she may be, makes the decision whether or not you're able to make decisions. And remember, you can also be competent for one purpose, but not for another. For example, maybe you're able to still write a check on your checking Mm -hmm. account but you can't understand the nuances of some high-tech medical procedure. So I guess then it would behoove all of us. If there is a statute in place that states there's a certain order of folks that get to make decisions for me, whether or not I have these advanced directives in place, regardless, if I become incompetent, someone's going to make a decision for me. So it would behoove me to actually name somebody that I trust to make the decisions and follow through on my wishes. Because no matter what, if I get hit by a bus walking out of here, that hierarchy is going to be filed and that person will make my decisions, whether or not I feel like they would have been the best person to do it, unless I have one of these documents in place. That's right. And, and the reason, that's exactly the reason we encourage people to create an advanced directive. And a healthcare power of attorney is just one type of advanced directive but if but to continue our earlier point if you if you name somebody as an agent in your healthcare power of attorney not only do you know who is going to be making your decisions but that document lets you tell them what decisions you want made care you do want and care you don't want if you don't have one of those then here's how the ranking order goes the the next person would be a person under what we call a general power of attorney. Now, this may be somebody you named for business purposes, right, to have access to your safe deposit box, 
to be able to go to the bank and write a check. So it might not be a family member at all. And you never intended for that person to be your health care agent. But under our state law, if that uh, document has in it any reference to personal affairs and relationships or health care, they're in charge. And that's a big surprise to a so lot of So they might actually trump my spouse. Well, because spouse is under that person. Uh-huh. So you've got this agent under a non-health care power of attorney. Then comes your spouse. Then comes a majority of your uh, living parents and children. So I've got a living parent and a brother. They, they get to decide, the majority. If you don't have any of those, it's a majority of your uh, brothers and sisters over the age of 18. And if you don't have any of those people, then it is a person who is uh, acting in good faith, who knows you, who seems to be acting in your best interest. That could be a neighbor. I call that the hunting buddy statute. We call that, yeah, exactly. Right. (laughs) So, you know, you're leaving a lot to chance if you rely on this statute versus deciding, you know, who you want to make decisions for you. And you're also giving up that huge power to say, I'm naming Nicole as my surrogate, and Nicole, here's what I want you to do if and when certain things occur. So if I'm not in charge, who is and what's the instruction I've left for them? Right. And knowing that I return to total control myself once I regain competence. Right. That's right. So it's not like I'm making a decision. How, how easy is it for me to change my mind? Well, it's very easy. If you um, make a healthcare power of attorney, you name I name you or Nicole as my agent or Jason. I'd recommend Nicole. I, over I me. think that's I'm just yeah. saying. I that's, think we can all agree on that. <laughs> right. But let's just say later you change your mind. You can revoke um, the healthcare power of attorney you've created, and you can tear it up. You can mark through it. You can burn it. You can also just make a new one. And if you have two of these things, I made one in January. I'm making one now in March. The one in March will govern. The, the one with the latest date always is the effective one. So very easy to change your mind. How expensive is this going to be? It sounds like it's a lot of money if I don't go to this clinic. Well, if you don't go to the clinic, it varies. I mean, okay. I, again, people, different, different attorneys charge different amounts. And, and for some people, that is money, you know, worth spending. We're just saying... You'll you can come it. get it for free, you know, why bother? And some folks think this may be like a teaser thing that will get you in the door and we'll talk about this and it'll actually cost you more money down the road. But you guys aren't doing a sales pitch at all. Oh, no, no. These The attorneys who come to these, and, and at each clinic, we typically have uh, somebody with a medical background. We have an attorney. We try to have somebody from the clergy, if we can, maybe a social worker. This is an entirely voluntary project. Um, when you walk in that morning, you'll hear very basic information like we're sharing today. You'll be given the chance to create a document if you want to, or you can take the forms home and think about it, or you can just come listen and leave and you may never see that lawyer again. This is not designed to generate business for law firms. That is the voice of Ken Burgess. He is with Pointer and Sproul Attorneys at Law, and we will be back with more Aging Matters right after this. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. 
News Radio 680 WPTF, you're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. Jason Kong, Cooper Linton, and Nicole Cleggett here. Our guest this evening is Ken Burgess with Pointer and Sproul, and we're talking all about advanced directives. I want to remind everyone that uh, you can go to transitionslifecare.org and the calendar of events section and find out plenty about the advanced directives event coming up here. Uh, but Cooper, the, uh, the term uh, living will came up during the break, and this is, uh, I think, an important part of the conversation that we're having today. Well, and Ken has informed me that the living will has actually nothing to do with who gets my Mickey Mouse watch and comic book collection when I die. He I was said, hoping that was going thing. to me. Dude, it's yours. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's, and Oh, oh yeah. And actually, the, <laughs> the minute hand still works on the watch, so we're, we're good on that one. Um, but there is a, we talk about living wills and what last wills and testament, and those words get thrown around, but they don't mean the same thing. Ken, illuminate this for us, will you please? Absolutely. Uh, so a will, most people know what a will is. It's when I die, Cooper gets my Mickey Mouse watch or... And comic book collection. And comic book collection. Um, Nicole? I'm feeling left out. Uh, and Nicole will get... <laughs> this is recorded now. I will think of something to give you. Oh. <laughs> something uh, gender appropriate. <laughs> oh, I right. like Mickey too. Okay. Right. But uh, a living will is, is a very different. A living will has nothing to do with your, your property. Instead, it's a document that says, if I am in, in a terminal condition, as determined by my doctor, terminally ill condition that I don't want to be kept alive by what we call life-prolonging measures. And simply put, they are, that's any medical intervention or, or machine or other uh, approach, medical approach that would only serve to keep me alive artificially. So common examples are a heart-lung machine or a ventilator. But it can be any kind mm-hmm. of treatment that the doctor says, if Ken doesn't get this, He's going to die a natural death pretty quickly. And in mm-hmm. fact, we these these documents, these living wills, are often referred to as declaration of a desire for a natural death. Mm-hmm. So, another point with the living will, I think that people often forget. You you do this now when we're healthy. Then you're suddenly faced with a life-limiting illness. I think it's probably a good time at that time to look at that and see if your perspective has changed as well. Would you not agree? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We encourage people who already have either a health care power of attorney mm-hmm. or a living will or both, mm-hmm. and we recommend both, to look at them from time to time because, for example, sometimes you know, your health changes. Mm-hmm. Your, your you have friend, a different experience. You have different experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, your your friendships. It may be the person you've picked in, as your healthcare agent. Maybe you're not so close mm-hmm. anymore. Maybe you yeah. got a divorce. Maybe you got divorced, <laughs> or they yeah. died. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but certainly, it's good to look at these things every few years. So I, you know, I received a phone call one day from a friend who said, "I don't want to be kept alive on tubes and wires." I said, all right, that's a place to start. But it gets to be a little more nuanced than that. You talked about life-prolonging measures. What are some examples of these life-prolonging measures? I think that's where things get a little naughty for people at times is discussing what I do or do not want. We've talked about resuscitation. Uh, We all see the medical dramas on TV where you get CPR and you're back to drinking coffee in about 15 minutes. But that's not real life. That's not real life, and um, it's great TV. But it is true that uh, the vast majority of people who have a cardiac arrest or pulmonary arrest, meaning they're not breathing, their heart's not beating, 
um, are not brought back to full quality of life. They may come back, but not the way they were. Right. I mean, and again, for some people, it's a great thing. But we know, especially in seniors, um, the, the sheer act of performing CPR often results in broken ribs, punctured lungs. and Oh, it's horrific. It's horrific. Yeah, um, if you've ever seen it, it's If you've rough. ever seen it, right. But again, a life-prolonging measure, which is what a living will would say I don't want if I'm terminally ill, is any intervention which the physician says without this, Cooper will not live very long. It could be a ventilator. It could also be something as minor as an antibiotic. Hmm. You think about some of the uh, high-powered infections that, that roam the world these days. Doctors the superbugs super we hear bugs, about. Yep. Right, uh, you know, uh, uh, MRSA, we call it. The method, mm-hmm. I can't ever pronounce it, but that the drug-resistant Methicillin-resistant staphylococcus that yeah. aureus. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it can be anything that would that is really just uh, an intervention that's keeping you alive artificially. I'm very impressed, by the way, that you could pronounce that. And I'm saying I don't want him leaving me that. No. <laughs> yeah. And when I die, Nicole, the mercy is all yours. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's awful. <laughs> We Sorry, di- Ken. We digress. You, <laughs> you need to bring us back into control yeah, on the show tonight. Well, let's come back to the, to the world of death and dying. <laughs> <laughs> so we're, it could be antibiotics. It could be something as simple as an IV. It could be artificial hydration or nutrition. And I was going to say with that, there's a lot of myths versus reality on that whole artificial nutrition and hydration. A lot of times families really struggle with that. Well, if I don't give my loved one a feeding tube and fluids, I'm starving them to death. And that's cruel and unusual punishment. And it gets to be very murky waters for folks. Yeah, it does. And we, when we present this topic to uh, audiences of just ordinary folks, right. we get a lot of questions about this. And uh, of course, I'm not a doctor. I've been around them for 35 years. But we do know there's a lot of literature out there, a lot of studies that we know at the end of life, people are not having hunger and thirst sensations like we are right, you know, right before lunch here or in the evening. Uh, and there are all kinds of interventions that physicians, nurses know how to, to implement that make sure you're not thirsty and you're not hungry. Uh, in fact, we often, we, and, and these, these artificial means of feeding people and giving them water have a lot of side effects. Uh, these nasogastric tubes and tubes that go in your stomach create infection, scarring, you know, all kinds of problems. Well, I think there's just something intuitive about, you know, if I don't eat, if I don't drink, I'll die. Uh, and we sometimes struggle with that if you're in a situation where death is inevitable, the cause of it is not likely to be dehydration or starvation. Most likely, it's the fact that the body is shutting down. Some sort of organ failure is bringing it down or there's some sort of disease that's eroding the body's capacity to function. And to put it in the kind of straight language, you're not going to live long enough to die of starvation. That's right. You know, I, I saw a headline in this publication called The Onion, which is a satirical news <laughs> thing, and it said, uh, world health officials disappointed World death rate remains steady at 100 yeah. <laughs> percent. I mean, we make a joke of it, but we right. are all going to die. And this whole conversation that we're having and, and the reason we have these clinics like Transitions is hosting is we see so many people, families, who are unable to celebrate the end of life 
the end of a loved one's life because they're so busy dealing with stress and argument and uncertainty. Well, I think you're bringing up a great point that what we're doing then is freeing up the latter part of life for the things that matter in a family and not using that time to make decisions that are very granular about care uh, and getting focused on the bigger things in life, the relationships, the caring, the memories, laughter, uh, final experiences, as opposed to those final experiences being making decisions about artificial hydration, nutrition, antibiotics, CPR, rehospitalizations, and the list goes on. That's exactly right. I, I, I hate to keep giving you studies, but there are a lot of studies out there now that we didn't have 20 years ago. One of the things we also know is that when family members have a directive from their loved one who is dying, a, a healthcare power of attorney, or a living will, family members are much more willing and are much more at peace about actually saying, let's do what mom said she wanted. When we ask them to make those decisions without information from the dying person, it's much harder. And they're much less willing to make decisions that mom actually wanted, even if she said she wanted them, but did not write them down. And those memories are harder for family on, on right. going forward. Yeah. When we come back, I'd like for us to talk a little bit about the most form, if we can. The most form. We will get into that with our guest, Ken Burgess, partner with Pointer and Sproul, and we'll do that in just a bit. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care right here on News Radio 680 WPTF. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care on News Radio 680 WPTF. Jason Kong here with Nicole Cleggett and Cooper Linton. And our guest this evening is Ken Burgess with Pointer and Sproul. And we're talking all about advanced directives. And Cooper, I've got my advanced directives scorecard here. So we've gone through uh, healthcare power of attorney, we've gone through living will. Uh, we've gone through statutes. Uh, now, you mentioned before the break the most form. Yeah, it, it sounds like you're going to get even more. You're going to get the most out of life. And maybe maybe mm-hmm. that's true in this. Um, but there's an what we often hear from talking with folks about advanced directives is, where does my doctor come into this discussion? And, you know, obviously one of them is that you need to have an open, candid discussion with your physician or physicians. Usually we have more than one. Um, but there is actually – there are some tools that can, in certain settings, be set up with your doctor uh, regarding your wishes at end of life. And, and Ken, you actually help work on some of this. Can you kind of bring us back – actually, the first time you and I ever met was on a presentation that you were doing on the most form. Which is a sad comment about both of our social lives, right? <laughs> we met talking about dying. <laughs> Yeah, there is a there's a form we created. We the General Assembly created and the Department of Health and Human Services with a lot of input from a lot of folks, me included, called the Most Form, which stands for Medical Order for Scope of Treatment. That's a mouthful, but it is actually a physician order. Only a physician or a nurse practitioner can fill it out, but a patient can go to their doctor and say, you know, I've heard about this Most Form. I'd like to have a conversation with you about it. And what is it? And essentially, it's a form, a medical form that travels with you. So it would go from home to the doctor's office, to a hospital, to a nursing home, to an assisted living, to a hospice. It's a portable form 
so that we know wherever you are in the healthcare spectrum what your wishes are and you don't have to have this conversation every time you change settings um, it, it covers everything from I you know if I'm at the end of life as we've been talking about I don't want a, a feeding tube right so how's this different than my DNR well that's a great question um, they actually uh, are partially the same but a DNR is do not resuscitate many people have heard of that it only has one very limited function, which is if I have a cardiac pulmonary arrest, I do not want CPR. I don't want you pumping on my chest. The most form can also cover that, but it's much broader. It covers a whole array of other treatments like I don't want antibiotics. I don't want CPR. I don't want a feeding tube. I don't want artificial water. So then how is this different than a living will? That's a great question. So you're just on you're on fire today, Nicole. I tell you what, I get an A. You're on fire. Where's my today. trophy? <laughs> so I don't want to confuse our listeners, but um, a living will is an advanced directive. A healthcare power of attorney is also an advanced directive. Both of those are telling my doctor or a third person, my agent, the kind of care I want at the end of life. Mm-hmm. The medical order for scope of treatment is the actual physician order that implements So it's just definitive. There's like no room for error there. This is literally what I want. Nobody can accidentally not do what I want because here it's written in an order. Well, and people need to remember that when we create these advanced directives, they are instructions. But those instructions still require a physician order to be implemented, Mm -hmm. and the most is such an order. So if we could back up a few steps back to that healthcare power of attorney, that healthcare agent, I think a lot of times, you know, when folks are thinking about, okay, I've got this pot of people around me, I've got my spouse, I've got my three kids, I've got my my parents alive. I think people feel like there is a certain order of people that they have to choose, choose and they don't want to hurt feelings. So, you know, I may feel obligated to choose my spouse to be my healthcare agent, but I might know enough about my spouse personality deep inside to think no matter what, this person's going to want me alive. And that's not necessarily what I want. And so they may not be strong enough to follow my wishes. So how do we actually make that decision? And, and how do we do it without hurting people's feelings? Yeah. That's another. Mm-hmm. You really are on fire. Today. That's another <laughs> great question. Two well, trophies. I two tell trophies. You what, I'm, I'm not going to be able to walk out of this room. My head's so big. <laughs> Your head's so big. I know it. <laughs> Well, it's, it's really important. You have to think about, um, you know, the person's temperament, their, their, as you said, their core strength, their personality. How well do they know you? How well do they handle a crisis? How well do they handle a crisis? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you want to you pick somebody that you think will honor your wishes mm-hmm. and, and can stand up. Because sometimes families, out of the best of intentions, will start to squabble. Oh, yeah. At the end of life. Most times. (laughs) And everybody thinks they know what dad wanted, Mm -hmm. when in fact they may not. So the first thing is to pick somebody who has all those characteristics. The second thing is to talk to that person Mm -hmm. and be sure to tell them, hey, I'd like for you to serve as my health care agent. Here's what I want. I'm writing it down. Can you handle that? Mm -hmm. The third thing is to share with the other family members. I'm picking my brother as my healthcare agent. Here's why I love you all, Mm -hmm. but I'm saving you all a lot of heartache by making this decision. And John, my brother, will Mm -hmm. be the one to decide what happens if and when. And finally, everybody, I'm going to tell John in writing in great detail what I do or don't want so there shouldn't be any 
doubt. You know, Cooper and I often talk about how advanced directives are the greatest gift because the reality of it is there are so many by-the-bedside arguments that destroy families forever and ever over some of these types of decisions. So, you know, you may have to deal with a little emotional stress and and letting some people down that they may not be the person you choose. But the reality of it is after you pass, all that's left are those family members to take care of one another. And if it's a mess, that's not a wonderful legacy to leave. That is spot on. And in fact, again, you know, it sounds like I'm proselytizing. Is that a word? Proselytizing (laughs) here for uh, end of life. And I am. Because um, when we create, especially the healthcare power of attorney and the living will, and we're very clear of, with what we do and don't want, really the person you've named as your agent, they're just implementing your wishes. They're telling the doctor, I'm giving you consent to do X or to not do Y. And you take away 90% or more of these, again, well-intentioned, heartfelt, but family ripping apart arguments that that just don't need to happen when you should be remembering your childhood with your parent or your spouse or whatever it may be. Well, healthcare can actually become a real distraction in the life. I mean, we don't think of it that way. We go, oh my gosh, we've got to use healthcare to avoid end of life. But you, you mentioned this earlier. It's not like we're actually going to avoid it. The question is, how are we going to plan for it? How are we going to address it? Who do we want involved? What do and we want as part of our end of life experience or conversely don't want and how do we try and shape that with the legacy of our loved ones in mind as much as possible these documents are a tool to help this to help this happen I think another thing that may come to a surprise to a lot of our listeners, you know, we have basically all control uh, supposedly legally over our children until they're 18. And then once they go off to college and something happens to them, we make the assumption that, you know, we will still have access to their medical records and things of that nature. We didn't mention this special HIPAA release form, which is something that's relatively new, I know. But my understanding is, is that most folks should have one of those for their children if their children are over the age of 18 so they can continue to have access if something in the event happens to one of their children. Uh, okay. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I stumped him. She stumped Ooh. No, no. Uh, I, I think uh, that's a, a good idea. I, I will say, though, that if you create, for example, a healthcare power of attorney, you are giving that agent access to your records. And thanks for throwing me a curveball here oh. on Statewide radio. <laughs> <laughs> well, but the reality of it is health healthcare directors aren't just for the old. You know, we need to be thinking about these even when we're young because, again, I'm driving down 40 every single day, and I can't tell you how many looks like fatal accidents occur right. to young people. And so, you know, we don't want to plan that we're going to die when we're 20 or 30, but that, that may very well happen. Right. So I'm going to put a shameless plug in for this event again on April 14th. At 11 o'clock or at 12.30, you have your pick of times to come out. And uh, we appreciate Ken working with us and and the attorneys from Pointer and Spruill and other attorneys from the North Carolina Bar Association coming out, as uh, well as one of our physicians will be there. Dr. Christopher Thompson will be there to help answer questions uh, and look at advanced directives and execute them if you wish. So please go to transitionslifecare.org, click on calendar of events, and register for the opportunity to make some plans for your future. 
Perfect. Excellent. Ken Burgess with Pointer and Sproul, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We really appreciate you coming My by. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. A reminder that you can catch a replay of this program online at WPTF.com. Head over to the Aging Matters section and you can listen to this show as well as every other show that we've done. We are just about out of time. I want to thank you so much for listening on behalf of Nicole Cleggett, Cooper Linton, and myself, Jason Kong. Have a great weekend and thank you for listening to Aging Matters care and comfort that surrounds you a service of transitions life care on news radio 680 wptf